0: So, that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hi, everyone. This is Monday Morning 8 a.m., a podcast from Firms Consulting that goes out every Monday, where we distill the insights from the noise by covering the big articles and stories in the business press over the last week. You can listen to the audio version of Monday Morning 8 a.m. by searching for strategy skills in any podcast app. And if you go to firmsconsulting.com forward slash promo and you put in your details for free, you can get a written version of this podcast with the links to all of the articles, journal pieces and topics we highlight. So we've got a pretty interesting set of articles to cover today. And we're going to start with M&A. That's the first big topic and theme we want to cover. In particular, there are a couple of articles that came out in the press, particularly in the Financial Times, that talk about the slanted focus of M&A. So for example, when we deal with clients, whether it's coaching and so on, and they want to move from a consulting firm to private equity, venture capital, hedge funds, and so on, most of them want to join at a junior level. But there are those who join at a more senior level where they're principal officers of the firms. But by and large, most people tend to focus on M&A as if it's only about valuation. So every time we talk to these people, they all want to brush up on their valuation due diligence skills. And for some reason, m and has become overly obsessed with valuation when it's only one part of what makes up the entire M&A conversation. The other two parts is what it is you are actually valuing. The second part is valuation, as I mentioned. And the third part is whether you take ownership of the thing you have valued. Now, that may be hard or it may be difficult to, to visualize without some examples. So I'm going to give you some examples of why if you are in m and and if you are only focused on the valuation side, you may be missing some key elements in terms of helping your clients create value. So let's start with a very interesting story in the Financial Times about Marowan Industries, which was created by Han Chang Hu, which is basically a gambling conglomerate and he had a daughter. Her name was Marina Haber, also known as the Pachinko Princess. Pachinko is a game played, It's now become a uh, gambling game whereby you put money and you gamble and basically that's how the guy created his fortune. So anyway, his children, including Marina, obviously very successful father, very wealthy father. So they did not have a need to work. And then he went back to his children and said, well, in particular, Marina is that if you want to be put back on the asset register, if you want to continue collecting dividends, you need to agree to divorce the person that you're married to. So this lady initially agreed and she refused. Her father then came back to her and said, okay, I'm going to give you a loan now because you ran out of money. You have no money. You're not collecting any dividends. But in return for this loan, you've got to surrender your passport. You've got to Leave your husband, and you've got to stop socializing. So she agreed, then she backed out. And then her father sued her for the loan he had extended to her. And all this time, she's been taken off the asset register, and she also is not collecting dividends. Now, here's the thing. His daughter Marina has decided to sue him, stating that he took her off the asset register without any legal cause. And she's therefore entitled to her ownership of the business. At least she's entitled to dividends or, and this is the big one, he needs to buy out her stake in the company at a value that must be mutually agreed. And she's filed a lawsuit in the US island of Guam in the United States because the United States tends to be more friendly in protecting investors than in Japan. Now what this entire story tells you, and it's a very important thing because I have a lot of clients in M&A and so on. Even when I was a partner and I was helping clients with corporate strategy, you can see here yeah, that it's not about what her share was valued at. It's about who has control of those shares. And I'm pretty sure what her father did in terms of removing her from the asset register, withholding dividends is not actually legal. And the fact that she's got a major American law firm to back her would mean they also probably agree to this. At some stage, he's either going to have to give her back her shares or buy them off at fair value. But the thing about MA is it's become almost about what is the value, should we pay it, but the question is are you getting ownership of what you've decided to buy? And if you don't have ownership of what you've decided to buy, then it doesn't matter. The M&A is a failure because the press now just reports, well, you spent $21 billion to buy a company, but what did you buy? Did you get what you wanted? I'll give you a very good example of this. this is another story in the Financial Times. A few years ago, uh, Hudson's Bay, which is a Canadian retailer, bought Saks, the entire chain, most famous for Saks Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. They bought it for $2.9 billion. One year later, the single... Saks fifth avenue store remember Saks is actually a chain of stores but one year later just the single store in manhattan the property on which that store sits was valued at 3.7 billion dollars now think about this hudson's bay bought the entire chain including the property for 2.9 billion dollars hudson's bay came back and revalued just the single property alone in manhattan at $3.7 billion and had Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs issue them a loan against the collateral which was this property. Now this is an actual quote from the Wall Street Journal. The luxury retailer didn't appraise its flagship building before agreeing to be bought by Hudson's Bay according to a securities and exchange commission filing the detailed merger process that last year. Wow. So you can imagine Sachs has these advisors and before they went ahead with the sale they did not correctly appraise one of their critical assets and sold the entire company for less than just one property was worth. Value is determined if there is a market but who determines what is the market against which the valuation is done? For example should Sax? have been valued as a retailer or a property holding business do you value a car company as a tech company as a digital company as an energy company or as a car company m&a is about ownership at the end of the day make sure when you value something you don't just value it against the correct market but you value it for what you alone think that market is worth if the rest of the market doesn't see a way to create value from something they'll value it at a low amount if you want the market to value something you're selling at a higher amount, you've got to show them that this thing that you're selling actually has value in it. m a is about ownership at the end of the day. Make sure you bought the right thing and actually control it the way you want to control it. I mean, linked to that, again, the Financial Times had a piece about um, Dreyfus Trading, which is a huge agricultural trading business, and the government of Abu Dhabi, through their holding company took a huge equity investment stake but crucially they put enough members on the board of directors to control the destiny of the company there they didn't just buy something they've given themselves confidence that they can control what they've bought m and is about strategy your bankers and lawyers can value something but they cannot tell you against what market it can be valued m and action always takes place in the legal minutiae It's not about the valuation. Look, the valuation is important. Once you identify the right target market, once you know you're going to take ownership, you're going to get it at the best price. But too much of M&A discussions is only about valuation. Getting the lowest price is nice, but it's nothing without acquiring and being able to control the right asset. This is a big deal. We had a program whereby we coach people from consulting into private equity firms we had a very high placement rate. Nine out of ten people got in. But at the end of the day, we stopped that program because too many people were only focused on valuation without understanding the broader implications of owning, managing, and extracting value from an asset. The other big theme we're reading is about esports. And again, the Financial Times had a great piece about how Formula One and FIFA is partnering with esports companies to one tap into a more youthful market, and two, to find avenues of growth given the pandemic. In fact, Gfinity, which is a UK-based company, has a dedicated esports center, which is today built opposite the Chelsea Football Club Stadium in the city of London. And the whole principle here is how do you get people playing these sports virtually? And the numbers are quite staggering, right? Roughly 443 million people watched esports in 2019. That's a 12% year on year increase on 2018. And the majority of whom were under the age of 35. And the pandemic has created an avenue for growth for esports in a way people would not have considered it. For one, Because regular sports, live sports, is not taking place today. Television networks don't have live sports to carry. And that space, that dead airtime needs to go somewhere. Now they're giving it to esports. And it's about understanding your market very, very carefully. In a way, this is almost a revenge of the nerd scenario because, and it generally you have to be careful what markets you alienate. For a long time, sporting companies ignored and to a large degree vilified people who played sports online because they didn't think they were hardcore sports enthusiasts. But really they made the mistake that Theodore Lever talked about in Marketing Myopia. They assumed sports as it currently is played today is their product and they didn't realize that their actual product is making people feel excited about the spot even if the avenue through which they engage the sport changed from live sports to video games. And because what is live football? It's just a medium and a channel, right? If you play football on a computer game or your laptop or your smartphone, you're still engaged in soccer, but it's a different medium. And the last mile is the big thing. That last mile refers to how do you connect to people just before they consume the product. You think about shopping this way, right? For a long time, you had to go to a supermarket. Then there were apps that came out. Well, not apps. Then there were services that came out whereby... A supermarket could sometimes package a predetermined basket for you and sometimes deliver it to you. And then apps came along whereby you could pick what you wanted. So rather than you going to the shop, the shop came to you. Sports needs to learn that. Rather than you going to a stadium, maybe the sport needs to come to you and it needs to change. Now, insiders who want to know more about this. If you look at the digital luxury brand, when we started off, we started off choosing to build a... um, luxury handbag for about fifteen twenty thousand dollars then we switched gears to opening up a boutique partnering with a major luxury brands and becoming their licensed partner and building their store as a boutique destination experience event and eventually we just said okay we have a list of high net worth individuals how do we give them what they want how do we wrap up a product that they want and give it to them. And the luxury brands company has pivoted several times to now actually earning no assets, but providing what high net worth individuals want. And that's a significant jump in our thinking. It's always about understanding your customers very, very carefully. The other big story we're reading is manufacturing and wealth, particularly Intel's decision to move the majority of its chip manufacturing to outsource providers, most likely in Taiwan, Korea, Korea, And maybe even China. And the big issue here is that is America as um, Intel as a proxy losing its manufacturing competitive advantages? Because for the longest time, while automotive companies and everyone was offshoring their manufacturing capability outside the United States, Intel by and large kept about, I think it was 80% to 60% of their manufacturing capability within the United States. And when they did ship out things, they kept their core high-tech stuff within the United States. But the reality now is that Intel has fallen behind, whereby Taiwanese companies are ahead of the curve, being able to fabricate smaller and smaller components. Now, the question here is, is Intel losing by giving up its manufacturing capabilities? Is anyone losing by giving up its manufacturing capability? So what I'm going to do for you to answer this question, I'm going to give you a bit of a sneak peek here those of you who have read Mavis and Turquoise Eyes, Mavis and Turquoise Eyes are the big, big books from Firms Consulting, whereby Chris and her team have put together books that teach critical problem-solving skills within an amazing, compelling, really captivating narrative whereby it feels like, you re- like you're in a movie, but you're learning about problem-solving. I've never seen anyone do that before. and It's quite remarkable now i've been fortunate enough to have the team send me an advanced copy of the prequel to mavis and turquoise eyes so this is the book that explains what happened in turquoise eyes and mavis and it's set many years before both books and in that book i'm not going to give away what it's about but it teaches business strategy in a very interesting way again and i want to read one of the excerpts from that book that explains why what Intel is doing and why all companies will end up outsourcing. So this is an excerpt from the book. Raymond Vernon, the Harvard economist. That's basically what this little clip is called about in the book. In 1966, Vernon published the article International Investment and International Trade in the Product Cycle, which he considered so seminal in his career as the one which will appear upon my gravestone. Vernon laid out a grand theory about how production shifts as a product aged through its life cycle. Although it was descriptive, this article was quickly picked up by corporate America and modified to expedite the offshoring trend. Vernon argued that the United States, as the preeminent global power at the vanguard of capitalism, would always produce innovative products for the foreseeable future. Innovative products were by their nature new, without standardized means of production, and required lots of tinkering. The tinkerers, the scientists, designers, engineers, salespeople, marketers, ETC, all had to work closely together to rapidly iterate new versions of the product until demand took off. A pre-digital world required them to be close to customers to understand what needed to be tinkered with. Once the product took off, the engineers had a good understanding of what to produce and built large factories to standardize designs. Since the product was still made in the United States with relatively higher labor costs, the product would naturally be a best fit for other higher income countries who could absorb this higher labor cost. The other richer countries would see the product, like it, and make modifications to the product for their domestic markets, which gave rise to competitors and as they competed with the American original version, they would naturally drive down costs. And they would then fight on costs. As the product became standardized, volume surged and the know-how was shared around the world, very little gave the US-made product an edge. Soon the higher US wages would become a liability. Although we never predicted this or had and just never committed it to paper, for Vernon a natural outcome of this competition would be a need to fight unions. And unsurprisingly, the unions were fought to a standstill and decimated in the United States. Yet it was not enough. Labour countries in countries like Mexico, China, Vietnam were just so low that for mature products, where labour costs became the single biggest driver of success, even in the United States with a broken union system, production had to move to cheaper foreign locations. And this, Vernon argued was why mature products, even those conceived with American ingenuity, would always end their lives in a factory in Asia. I think that answers the question very well. And this is in the sequel to Mavis and Turquoise Eyes, which will be coming out, I'm sure, shortly, because the team is currently working on all the kinds of changes and so on that they always do to make these books so compelling and readable. The final big theme is going digital. And I'm going to talk about General Motors, which announced a plan to hire three thousand new workers to deepen their text to deepen their tech expertise now for those of you who are insiders and insiders with access to the new knowledge management system you can see a new study we're going to put out about digitization and digital strategy and you're going to see a new video program about this going digital means you have to first decide what you're going to digitize what are you going to make exist in digits is the product going to be virtual Or is the delivery of the product going to be virtual? If the product's going to be made virtual, is the product itself going to be virtual? Or is the process to design a physical product going to be made virtual? Once you need to decide that that's called digitization, it's about how you're going to serve the customer. You then have to decide how you're going to be digitalized, which is how to make money. So you have to first digitize, then digitalize, and the big challenge here is how do you implement all of this which is about getting all of the company to rally around this first digitization program and then digitalization program now the thing about general motors big announcement is that it's just that it's an announcement it's a signal to the market gm has sent out the signal trying to show the market that you know what you need to start valuing us like tesla or a digital company or a new wave modern company because we're not just a boring automotive company look we're going digital they're hoping that this is going to show investors that you know what we're at least trying so don't punish our share price if anything keep it the same but over time you've got to start treating us like a digital company in fact this may lead to some bump in their share price And the bump will stay as long as the market thinks it will lead to an increase in future free cash flow because that is what drives your share price future free cash flow but an announcement from general motors is just a promise until they actually go digital and see an increase in their free cash flow that is sustainable it's just a promise at some point the market shareholders investors the media the press and so on will ask the question General Motors said a lot of things in 2020 and 2021 about going digital, but did they actually deliver? So you can do it one of two ways. You can make a lot of promises, but you have to deliver. Or you can deliver. Think of Adobe. Adobe is a company that has seen an enormous share price appreciation purely because they moved away from the old model whereby you bought a license for one year and you downloaded some system into your your laptop or iMac and you started using it to a system whereby you subscribed monthly for what is now a splinted packages. So rather than buying one big Adobe suite with everything in it and getting a license for the year or five years or whatever it is, Adobe disaggregated their products and allowed you to subscribe to discrete products. And you paid a monthly fee. And that's led to a huge amount in the number of subscribers because by breaking down the product, someone could choose i just want to subscribe to this i just want to subscribe to this and because they kept it fairly cost effective for the value they're creating subscriptions have gone up so that's the adobe model less press releases more results because think of the last company that made a huge amount of noise about going digital and that would be general electric they made a lot of noise about going digital for the industrial age building a digital internet and ultimately they've significantly pare down that effort to the point they're selling their digital capabilities so you have to think about this you have to know where you're going to play and how you're going to play my last message for insiders in life you get two kinds of people one is a merchant and the other one is a consumer a merchant well let's get to a merchant last a consumer is someone who feels happy when they buy things a merchant makes or sells or distributes so you, you feel bad and you decide to go and buy a new Nike, a new iPhone, and you feel great about yourself because you gave money to someone else who's going to use that money to create more products, which you can end up buying from them. A merchant, and I hope all insiders are merchants, we don't get happy by just buying things. We buy things to help us be better merchants. A merchant is someone who creates a business, a product, a service, and we sell to consumers if you are listening to this newsletter yes you're a leader you're someone in strategy but ultimately you think like a merchant it's an old school terminology no one uses it anymore probably went out of fashion in 1500s but that's what it is we're all merchants here we create things other people pay money to use if you work at a bank in wealth management you are creating a service that other high net worth individuals want to buy you're a merchant but what i want everyone listening to this podcast series is to think like a merchant we take great pride. We take internal solace in knowing we are building businesses. We are, it may not be our own business. We could be working for someone, but we are building something of merit. Strategy and analysis is a really shiny object, but it's a lot like the mistake that the uh, sporting companies made in the story about esports. Many people who listen to this podcast series and use our services in general they are so excited, and they find sex strategy to be so sexy that all they want to do is produce a beautiful slide and analysis, and they believe their job is done. The goal of strategy is not to produce a great slide; it's to actually get the result that you talked about in your slide. It's like when someone wants to put a hole in a wall; they don't want a hammer, they don't want a nail; they want a hole in the wall. Nobody wants a strategy document. They want what the strategy document promises. And if you're an insider, and you are so excited about being in strategy, you just can't wait to put together a strategy analysis, that's great, but that's not what the client wants. They see that strategy document as one step to get the end result. You need to think like a merchant and get things done. You need to think like someone in business and realize that a nice strategy document is not enough. This is the true metric of success. Did you achieve what you promised in a document? Merchants build. Consumers give merchants their money. If you want to see this thinking in action, if you're an insider, look at the Andrew program. The Andrew program, Andrew became, I don't know the numbers exactly, but he went from senior manager, not to partner, but to senior partner in three years, which is very, very fast. And the reason we were able to do this is because we changed his mindset his mindset has always been i'll sell some studies make some money a couple of million and i'll be partner. and we said hey hold on a second you've got to stop thinking in that very narrow way you've got to think about how to implement things and if you can do that they're going to make you senior partner as always hope you enjoyed this podcast series remember that Mavis turquoise eyes and succeeding as a management consultant some of our big books are out in particular Mavis is a completely new way and a new way of thinking to teach productivity. It's about building a world that's compelling and interesting. And it's one part of a series of books that's coming out. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing,